This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. One day this summer, you might have found yourself wandering along the boardwalk at Coney Island. The sun warming your shoulders, the smell of the sea in your nose, and this in your ears. Come on in! They're here! They're real! They're alive! They're here! They're real! They're alive! But you have to come in now! That's it. The call to the freak show. Seedy, slightly unnerving, and yet strangely compelling. It's not what it used to be. In fact, freak shows are almost unheard of these days once you come in from the fringes of society. Many of us are really only directly familiar with them from the 1932 cult movie Freaks. That film spawned such cultural phenomena as the Ramones' Gabba Gabba Hay chant. But all that said, for the last 150-odd years, freak shows have been a part, maybe a shameful part, but a part nonetheless, of American culture. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are getting our freak on, you knew I had to say it, with a look at the freak show in America. My guest today on the show is Leonard Casuto. Casuto is a professor of English at Fordham, and he has written extensively about freak shows in American literature and culture. He joined me in the studio to talk about the history of the freak show, why we used to like it so much and why we stopped liking it, and why Oliver Sacks might be a kinder, gentler P.T. Barnum. Leonard Casuto, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell me the story of The Freak Show. The, uh, the Freak Show is an ongoing story in the United States, but um, the, uh, which I will separate into two parts. The formal Freak Show, the one where, uh, you, where you have a banner that says Freak Show and people pay to get in, and the, uh, the figurative Freak Show, the Jerry Springer Show, the, uh, uh, the spectacle of Michael Jackson, and other informal spectacles that people will describe as Freak as. Wow, what a freak show. In the United States, the formal freak show, the one that uh, people pay admission to get into and say, I'm going to the freak show, was um, a, a uh, primarily a 19th and early 20th century phenomenon. It had its peak, its peak years were about 1840 to 1940. The other kind, well, that, that's going on all the time, even now. Tell me how it became a popular thing, when it became popular, why it became popular, and when and why it fell apart. There's been a lot of, of um, very, I think, insightful work on what it is that freak shows were doing for people when they became popular in the 19th century. And I think that, uh, and here I'll give give credit to, to Rosemary Garland Thompson, who is um, a professor at Emory, who suggested that, uh, that freak shows are basically enforcing some of the of the ideals of who Americans thought they were how they wanted to think of themselves that the the freak shows uh promoted a certain form of identification and here you know if i if i decide that i'm going to go to the symphony i'm not only going for the music but let's say that i'm also status conscious and i'm going because I want to be the kind of person who goes to the symphony. We understand that that's a certain kind of person who is culturally highbrow. If I'm going to the symphony because I want to be seen at the symphony, I'm identifying upwards. I'm creating an ide- a, a little piece of an identity for myself. Same thing if I go to a benefit at, a, at an art museum. If that's a place where I want to hang out, then it's it's saying something about who I want to be. So I'm, I'm identifying upwards with those institutions and the people who, um, who, who go to them. But with a freak show, people are going in order to identify against 
the people who are being exhibited there as freaks. That is, broadly speaking, Americans, and I would venture to say people from other cultures too, but in America there was a very well-developed freak show culture. The uh, Americans would, in the heyday of the freak show, pay their money in order to look at people who are being exhibited in order to say, I'm glad I'm not them. So it's a way of saying what you're not rather than what you are. Precisely. So if I were to be somebody who was going into a freak show in the 18th or 19th century, walk me through it. Tell me what I would expect to see. Fundamentally, a freak show was an enclosed space that people were charging money to an, a paying public to get in and see the inside of. That starts with what was called the talker, not the barker, but the talker, who would be outside touting what was inside. We didn't lie to you, folks. We told you we had living, breathing monstrosities. You laughed at them, shuddered at them, and yet, but for the accident of birth, you might be even as they are. Sometimes there would be a freak who would be outside with him as a a little bit of a teaser. But uh, the talker would try to... uh, lure an audience into the inside. And once you pay your dime or whatever it is and you, and you walk in, you would um, encounter a series of architecturally separate exhibits. The person being exhibited, the freak, would be inside the cubicle with uh, whatever props he or she might require in order to bring the act off. So, for example, if you have a uh, so-called armless wonder, somebody who who um, lacks arms, the uh, the armless wonder would perform inside his or her space by doing the kinds of things that able-bodied people would uh, do in the course of a normal day, such as pour and drink a cup of tea, or um, roll and light a cigarette. But because these activities are being performed just with the feet, they, they become a, a little bit marvelous to witness. Go to the next booth, and uh, you might have the fat man or the fat lady who doesn't have to perform, but will be sitting in a, in, in a throne of sorts, and will talk to the audience. In each case, the freak is on a raised platform, but, so the, the audience is not facing the freak eye to eye. But the encounter is fairly personal in that you're not very far away from the exhibit and you can interact with the exhibit, talk to the person who is being exhibited, who will talk to you. And in this situation, there is also something to be sold, uh, postcards, which were called carte de visite, which had photographs of that particular exhibit. And the freak would make extra money by selling these carte de visite uh, to to members of the public who would could collect them. Scrapbooks were very big in the 19th century generally, and among the uh, the artifacts that people might keep in a scrapbook would be a collection of these cards. You could look at this as a, a 19th century equivalent of baseball cards. And um, so the audience member would go from exhibit to exhibit, from compartment to compartment, and uh, after a while would pass through the rows and out of the building or the tent. I'm saying building or tent because sometimes freak shows were part of circuses and sometimes they were parts of museums. Museums got started in the 19th century in large part on on the strength of the appeal of freaks, not on the appeal of high culture. 
P.T. Barnum is not only one of the legendary founders of the of American freak show culture, but he's also the at the at the very center of American museum culture. He used to run a dime museum, cost a dime to get in, and it would be filled with curiosities. Some of the curiosities would be alive. So tell me why, in your view, freak shows became popular when they did. The period of greatest popularity of freak shows in the United States is from about the mid-19th century to about the mid-20th century. For the 1840 to 1940 are the commonly accepted beginning and ending dates, but these are blurry at both ends. Freak shows became popular at a time when American democracy was being threatened. The United States was not particularly stable during the 1840s and the 1850s. When Lincoln was elected in 1860, the, uh, the democracy uh, encountered its greatest threat of the 19th century. That is to say, sectional division spurred by the slavery debate was stressing American democracy during the mid-19th century. And uh, my own thinking is that this kind of sectional division and the tension over slavery really fueled the popularity of the freak show because people's identity as Americans was under siege. And in particular, the uh, freak shows themselves included not only people with anomalous bodies, armless wonders, giants, dwarfs, midgets, but also people who were being exhibited because of cultural differences. And those people were always non-white. And so the, the typical freak show audience member was white and could go into the freak show and receive assurances that he was an able-bodied American but also that he uh, that his whiteness made him into a, a full-fledged member of the democracy and not a slave, or in the case of northern African Americans, they were not very, very well off socially either. And, you know, and so a white audience member could be reassured uh, on either side of the Mason-Dixon line. Cleopatra ain't one of us. Why, we're just filthy things to her. She'd fit on hands if he wasn't given her present. Let her try it. Let her try doing anything to one of us. You're right. She don't know us, but she'll find out. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning on the show, we are talking about freak shows. My guest is Fordham English professor Leonard Casuto. We're also hearing some clips from the 1932 Todd Browning film, Freaks. When that movie, a story of love, trickery, and bizarre revenge, first hit theaters, Depression-era audiences were so shocked by its cast of, quote, real freaks, that the movie effectively ended Browning's career. In 1994, though, Freaks was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry. Apparently, time had softened the film's effect somewhat, but it is still shocking enough to have been a cult film for the last several decades and to have a cultural influence that is ironic given the tiny stature of the male lead. The famous Gooba Gaba We Accept You line in the film has lived on to appear in such diverse entertainments as The Simpsons, not surprisingly, and the Will Smith movie I, Robot. 
And the film's been an influence on the kids in the hall. Remember that Chicken Woman sketch? And has appeared in the lines of the David Bowie song, Diamond Dogs. Probably the movie's most compelling aspect is the fact that Browning did choose to use actual carnival acts rather than actors. But what is so compelling about this in the first place? Casuto and a number of other academics have been working on figuring that out. Let's return now to that conversation. So what were the mainstays of the freak show, and what was it about these acts that fascinated people? Robert Bogdan, who is um, a sociologist who's done some very important analysis of the freak show, divides freaks into, into two groups, the kind that are tricked out and dressed up to make them look like they are better than they are. On the other end of the spectrum was, um, most famously, the geek. The geek could even be able-bodied. But you can take an able-bodied person, dress him in rags, dirty him up, uh, make his hair grow go wild, grow out his beard, and put him into a cage with hay, and then have him bite off the heads of live, of live chickens, and that, that kind of display will serve to compromise his humanity in the view of the person who's looking on. And freak display could take either form or anywhere in between. And the, uh, the appeal of this is always the distance that it creates between the, uh, the audience and the person who's being displayed, because the audience member should feel good about himself as a result of this. Something else I thought was interesting, too, was the idea that, you know, you couldn't just have somebody who was a really tall person from the U.S. or, you know, a guy who could live next door who happened to have no arms. They often had to be people who were sold as being from exotic places, you know, or, or things that were from exotic places, like the Fiji mermaid. Yes, the the exoticism served to increase the necessary distance. In order for a freak show to work, the audience member had to, on the one hand, be able to identify with the person who was being exhibited on some on some basic level in order to feel there but for the grace of God go I. On the other hand, the audience member had also to feel distanced from the threat that this person could be me. So one way to create the distance and the security that that distance would bring would be to enforce an exoticism around the freak. The Fiji mermaid is an example. The Circassian beauties of the 19th century um, who were ethnics, uh, Asian ethnics, whose bodies were a little different, they uh, big butts, and they were displayed as the epitome of exotic beauty. Well, they were they were just members of a different culture whose physiology was was different from that of the average white Anglo-Saxon. So that exoticism increased the distance, and by increasing the distance, you enhance the security that comes from going in to see uh, a group of people who will then make you feel good about yourself because you're not them. So why did the freak show collapse? Why did it recede as a phenomenon? The freak show started to go away in the, uh, the, in the 1940s in the United States. The most important reason for that is the medicalization of the freak. If you display somebody as um, the leopard boy and say, you know, that he's from the, 
the the reaches of darkest Africa and read this pamphlet, or better yet, buy this pamphlet that explains how we captured Johnny the Leopard Boy and uh, his his bizarre and exotic way of life, and he only eats raw meat. God only knows how it is that a race of leopard people came to be on this uh, on on the earth, and we're so lucky to have this one specimen for you. Don't get too close, folks, because you know he might bite. It's one thing to display a person that way and to create the air of the uncanny about him. It's quite another thing to say, poor John has vitiligo, the, which is the same disease that Michael Jackson has, that's causing his skin to blotch. We don't have any cure for vitiligo. But look, look at this case of vitiligo. It's tragic. It has um, disfigured this poor young man. In both cases... The audience is being encouraged to, to look at a human being as an exhibit. In the first case, the freak, the case of the freak, Johnny the Leopard Boy, the audience is being encouraged to feel a sense of wonder, even as the audience also knows that this is an act, that this is a person who's being, uh, who's being dressed up in this way. But the the act is creating. Uh, a sense of of the wondrous unknown. In the second case, which might be staged in a medical school classroom, the uncanny is being completely effaced. It's being explained. The case of wonder is being reduced to a case of a particular a particular disease, a pathology. The result is is still something to be looked upon. The People who were, who were exhibited in medical theaters, I think, do not have particularly warm memories of the experience, but uh, the nature of the display is fundamentally different. It still reduces the person who is being looked upon, but it, it's now uh, a scientific case. And if you extend this, if the giant becomes a case of, of giantism, a pituitary disorder, then it... Uh, well, it for for a lot of audiences, it took the fun out of it. Is it fundamentally different, or did the audience just change? In many ways, it shares a lot of the characteristics of a freak show in, in that that it degrades the person who is being looked upon. But uh, for a freak show to work, I think there needs to be an element of wonder, an an element of the uncanny, an element of the the great unknown that you're looking upon. But once you have explained the disorder, then an argument could be made that you can no longer experience that person, even in a display context, as a, as a freak. That they, it, it may be that some of the residue is left behind, but uh, the more you know, the less you wonder. The less you wonder, the less possible a freak show is. The more you know, the worse you feel about yourself for being, uh, for gawking, I guess, is that probably too. true, too. The, uh, and the, the phenomenon of staring, I think, is something that we're, we're only really just beginning to understand. What it means to stare at another human being just because of what that human being looks like, it's a, a powerful, fraught mixture of emotions. And uh, to say human beings will never stare seems to go against something in human nature, but at the same time, it is clear that there are forms of staring that are terribly harmful. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. 
This morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On this week's show, a look at the New York Marathon. George will be running the marathon, by the way. I won't, in case you're wondering. This morning on Fordham Conversations, we are in fact eschewing such wholesome pursuits and talking about freak shows. My guest on the show is Lenny Casuto. He's a professor of English at Fordham, and he's been writing about freak shows for a number of years. For the last while, Casuto's also had another related interest, the neurologist and writer Oliver Sacks. I asked him about that. I've been writing about Oliver Sacks for some years, and my interest in him proceeds from the the fact that it seems to me that Oliver Sacks is staging a, a kind of freak show in our time that redeems the freaks, which is uh, almost unbelievable to think about. How can you display people in a freak show context and at the same time redeem their humanity and and highlight their humanity? And it's, it's I think, the central paradox of Oliver Sacks' work that he manages to do that. And Oliver Sacks is a neurologist who, who has written extensively about some of the more unusual cases that he has had and also some of the more neurologically anomalous people he's gone to visit who are not who he's not encountering them in in a medical context instead he's going to see them as they live their own lives people with Tourette's syndrome people with autism and other unusual neurological formations and uh, there's no question when Al- Oliver Sacks presents these cases or clinical tales as he also likes to call them He's calling attention to the wonder, the amazing aspects of, for example, um, people with Williams syndrome who are unable to add two single-digit numbers and yet have a high appreciation of music and social skills that probably exceed my own. So there's no question that Sachs is trying to call our attention to the wonder of of, of such conditions. Uh, and that creates the freak show effect. But at the same time, and uh, I think Sachs has become increasingly careful about this over the course of his of his career as, he, as he's recognized the need to do it, he has also, and at the same time, tried to bring our attention to the fact that these are human beings who are living their lives and that the way that they are is human and that we should understand them as human and that is ideologically the opposite goal of the freak show. So Oliver Sacks is staging a kind of freak show in the same medical language that did away with the freak show in the first place. And he's doing it in order to create wonder and to help us appreciate the humanity. And in this respect, Sacks is perhaps giving in to the idea that human beings will stare at other human beings if they see. Uh, if they see what they what they perceive as strange, but uh, instead of trying to forbid the stare, he's trying to turn it into some kind of exchange to allow human uh, to allow people to appreciate the diversity of the human condition. In the last couple decades, there's been sort of a resurgence in like the traditional sideshow. I think the most famous example is the uh, Jim Rose Circus sideshow. What do you attribute this to? The the freak show has never gone away. There are still a few left. There always have been. They're on Coney Island. They go on tour a little bit. Somebody who's in in search of freak shows might have to go to the fringes, but he or she will find them. But the freak show that you find 
on on the fringes, the last vestiges of the traditional freak show that are out there, where the, you have a sign that says freak show and you pay your money to get in expecting to see freaks, what you find when you get in there are uh, people who have changed their own bodies, for example, tattooing them or uh, piercing them in ways that are that go beyond even what you'll see in the East Village, or people who are performing in unusual ways. Sword swallowing is, is, a, is an old staple, fire eating. But uh, the freak show that you will find today is a performance-based freak show. There is no longer the exhibit of mentally retarded people, no longer the exhibit of armless wonders or um, the uh, or quadru- or quadruple amputees or pe- people who are not even necessarily amputees people uh, who are limbless the uh, they uh, they were exhibited in freak shows and there's one famous one in the movie freaks those people are not exhibited anymore uh, which I think is all to the good as far as our our evolution as a society with um, with scruples the anomalies that you find in the in a in a, in a freak show of today are voluntary. There's an aspect of the 19th century freak show that was involuntary. The Hilton twins, for example, famous conjoined twins, who were also in the movie Freaks. The Hilton twins were, we now know, held virtually prisoner by their managers and forced to exhibit themselves against their own wishes. And that's um, there. That's latter-day slavery. So there is an emphasis in today's freak shows. I think now on. I don't want to say there's no, now a politically correct freak show, but rather that there are there are zones that today's freak show will not dare to go in. And I think that is, for the most part, a good thing because people with certain kinds of physical disabilities uh, need to be brought into. The, uh, the mainstream, not excluded from it. It seems like the, um, at least the Jim Rose sideshow that I saw years and years ago at Lollapalooza, it seemed like it was sort of about people being freaky to empower themselves in a certain way, too, which I wouldn't have said was true of the ones of the past. I agree, and I think you'll find that in the East Village as well. Um, I will ask you one more question, and I'll close with this. Do you have a favorite story from the world of the freak show that you would like to relate? I'm fascinated by the the way that the early tattooed freaks presented stories of themselves. The first famous freaks who were famous by virtue only of their tattoos in the 19th century would tell their story, and they would also write their story in pamphlets and sell the pamphlets. The origins of the earliest tattooed freaks had to do with involuntary tattooing. They would tell fantastic tales of how they were held prisoner on distant islands and tattooed by native peoples according to the designs of their tribes. And always it was involuntary. And these were men who would come back and they would be describing scenes of their subjection at the hands of these natives. John Rutherford was the first famous tattooed freak. He first started displaying himself in the late 1820s. And the real story of how he got his tattoos is ordinary. He was a sailor. He he went out. He he got them over time. But when he started displaying himself, 
he he told this incredible story of being captured, being held captive for six years, forced to get married to the chief's chief's young daughter of the tribe who was being held by, being forcibly tattooed by by the tribe's people. I'm really interested in the way that this this violation gives way to um, other stories like it, and the way that tattooing starts out as a threat to manhood, and then later in the 20th century becomes a demonstration of, of manhood. That is, sailors would, a, sail, a sailor's tattoo would be part of his macho image. And uh, the way that tattooing has, over time, gained this very complicated and fraught relation with gender roles. I'm intrigued by the way that it started way back when and that it started in the context of The Freak Show. Well, Leonard Casuto is a professor of English at Fordham University. Lenny, thanks so much. Thank you. Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. She has eyes that folks adore so, and a torso even more so. Lydia, oh, Lydia, that encyclopedia. Oh, Lydia, the queen of tattoo. On her back is the battle. That's Groucho Marx singing the song Lydia, the Tattooed Lady from the Marx Brothers' 1939 film At the Circus. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Forum Conversations. You can read Leonard Casuto's latest article on Oliver Sacks in the November 2nd edition of the Chronicle of Higher Education. And if you want to listen to the show again, there are a couple ways to go. It's available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's in our audio archive, which you can also find on that website. If you have any questions or comments on today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.